0: Um, And so um, my task tonight is to open the Bible. And in 10 years, 10 years coming here, you've never once heard me say, this is a word from God. I I have said, this is me opening God's word. And then my interpretation of what's going on, and I sort of like leave it with you, at least that's what I try to do. I try never to be a coercive sort of person or definitely not a manipulative person at all. I'm just simply saying that what's on my heart tonight is weighing on me so heavy, I'm still not gonna say this is thus saith God, I'm just very careful not to do that. I will say I have a deep inner knowing that we had better get this. And I'm begging you, I'm begging you to give me your full attention for the next 40 minutes or so. And more than that, I'm begging you to respond. Because I'm telling you, if we don't get on board with what I'm gonna share tonight, we are going to get left behind let me set up the story here. Um, so the reason I wrote this sermon was twofold, and they happened to coincide accidentally. Uh, so the first reason is I, I was getting lots of emails asking me to complete the Revelation series that I did. So I did a 12-part series on Revelation where I preached the whole thing, and I purposely left the section off for the letters to the seven churches on purpose because I thought each one deserved its own its own message, right? And I didn't want to just skip over it and do it an injustice. And so, I so I started getting into that. But the, the the second question I was getting asked all the time is, "Is Shane where must the church go from here to stay on the front of that wave of what the Spirit is saying?" Right. And so I was sort of praying through that, but then studying for the seven churches. And then what I found was is that Jesus's advice to the Christians in first century Asia Minor ironically is exactly where we are now and we need to heed those instructions. And so um I want to open up the first letter. Uh, the first letter is to a place called Ephesus. Here's what we're going to do and here's um I have the whole series out there now. What I do with each one of them is I tell the history of the individual city to the best of my ability and then we read the letter with that as the backdrop. And what we'll find in each letter is that Jesus is speaking specifically to that city situation and he's letting them know something about their situation that they know he's not far away somewhere else, but rather he's walking amongst our broken story. And it's quite a moving sort of thing um, once you see it. So this is the letter to seven churches. This is the first one. It's, It's a place called Ephesus. This is Revelation chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. So let's talk about the big story, then the small story, and then ultimately your story. So if you're a linear thinker and you need to have linear thought, here's your linear thought, the big story. The small story, your story. Next slide. What's going on in this passage? You have a guy named John and John's writing a circular letter because he was exiled to the island of Patmos by a guy named Domitian. What historical folklore tells us is that the Roman Empire tried to execute John by boiling him in oil, and he survived it. They were reticent to try to execute him. Again, the idea is is that if you survive a government-mandated execution twice, people might start thinking God is on your side. And so Caesar just wanted to get rid of him and said, put him on an island called Patmos. So here's this half-boiled guy out in Patmos and he's irritated and he's writing a letter that's going to circulate to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Real people at a real place, at a real time, in a real moment with real struggles. And there's nothing magical about the order of it. If you look at the mail route of the day, it just follows the mail route. Okay. And so the first place that would have, that would have stopped is, is Is Ephesus. John's in exile because of Domitian. We'll talk about him in just a second. John's in his 70s. He's been following Jesus since he was a teenager. So what's moving to me about this is 60 years after Jesus has ascended, he's still speaking into our right now. And that's really important that Jesus is not a God that exists outside of our broken story. Rather, he's indwelling the broken story with us to make a better narrative. Now, the pattern you find in each of the seven churches, next slide, is this. There is a commendation for what they're doing that brings life. So Jesus says, hey, I like this. Hey, keep going with that. But then there's often a correction about things, something they're engaging in that brings death. And what you find when he corrects them is it's not about shaming or criticizing or banishing or judgment in that that sort of holy court. It is, hey, there's a better narrative here. I'm inviting you to participate in that because he always ends the letter with this offer of restoration and reconciliation for the consenting wise. Now, even in Laodicea, where he's like, I'm looking at your life and I wanna throw up really. Um even something like that when you get to the end of it he's like but if you want to eat i'd like to have a meal with you I, I i'd like i'd like to sit down and let's make this better so let's look at this next slide so Ephesus was very important it was the it was the absolute epicenter of trade think New York Singapore Hong Kong. It was where, if, if there was a, uh, a New York Stock Exchange in that day, it's, this, is, th- th- this is Ephesus. So Paul starts a church there and then handed it to Timothy to run. The central marketplace was called the Agora. It's where we get the word agoraphobia from. It was, it was where, and when I say central marketplace, I'm not talking about Toowoomba Grand Central. I'm talking about the world marketplace. So whether you came from the east, China, India, or whether you came from the west, modern-day France, place like that. They would come and they would buy, sell, and trade in the Agora and get products that they didn't have back there, and then they would take it back and sell it at a profit. It was the center of global trade, which means Domitian loves it. Next slide. So, So Domitian, before you could buy and sell, you had to give an offering of money and incense to the gods, and particularly Caesar. Here's what Caesar did. Brilliant. He built a toll road. On the global marketplace highway by demanding that he get a small percentage of the sales before they even happen just for the divine privilege of having the Son of God be the ruler, right? Brilliant. It would be like this. Imagine if you got one cent for every MasterCard transaction done at Grand Central today. That, that would be all you would need, right? So, so Caesar sets this thing up, and here's what he does. He builds a temple to his own honor. Um, because he's God. Why wouldn't you? The Roman historian Virgil said, in the fullness of God was found in Caesar, no other name on earth by which men can be saved other than the name of Caesar. These guys were narcissists like you cannot believe. He built four churches, ecclesias, outside of the Agora, and he inscribed his mightiest deeds on stone tablets there. And every morning and every night, they killed a red heifer cow, I guess, they killed a red heifer, and then they burned it on this altar that created this ash underneath, just to say, Caesar, you're our provider, you are our portion, you are our deliverer, Caesar, we honor you, and of course, you got this pot of ash, so when people were coming from the east or the west, what Domitian said is you had to first go and give an offering of incense and money to the gods, and namely me. This was a genius, genius financial plan to line Caesar's pocket. The problem is, is how did you police that? So what they did is they employed acolytes, witnesses, and their whole job was to witness you come in and give your offering to Caesar. When you did that, they created this paste and they would mix it with the ashes of the red heifer and they would rub that pasty ash thing on your forehand or on your forehead to tell the managers of the Agora, you've done your deal and now you can buy and sell. Think of it like going to a bar and getting the arm bar or the stamp that you've been ID'd. It's like something like that. And so before you could buy and sell, you had to take something called the Mark Now, the Jews didn't like this. And so what they did is they nicknamed him the beast who comes from land and sea. More on that in a second. So from 70 AD to 92 AD in the Roman Empire, before you could buy and sell, you first had to take the mark of the beast. Yes, it's not. And okay, so it's a it's a historical reality that was okay. So here was the Roman Empire. Ready? One world government. One world leader who said he was God in flesh with one world currency, and they were manipulating the one world currency to oppress any group of people who would not call Caesar Lord. Okay, so this is what's going on in, in, in Ephesus. Next slide. So the followers of Christ were conflicted about this, as you can imagine. So Christianity is this new fledgling sort of movement, and they were conflicted. They, they, they basically had two questions. One, do we offend Jesus by offering the honor to Caesar and the gods? Like if we go by and give the incense and the money to Caesar and take the mark, is this so offensive to Jesus that it's actually it's better to go broke than to do that? Or to, and you could sort of understand this logic, since the gods aren't real, can we just do it as an empty gesture so we could live? And there were people on both sides of that argument. That's a different sermon for, for a different day. Ne- ne- next slide. But you can understand the, the tension here. Next slide. So Domitian was the Caesar at the time of writing in exile. And here's the thing, he loved Ephesus. Any thought you've had that he was torturing Ephesus? No, no, no. He needed Ephesus to thrive. Why? Because he's getting a penny off every MasterCard thing at Grandson. Like, he doesn't want these people suffering. He doesn't, he wants them to win. And Ephesus, it's like my, you scratch my back, I scratch yours sort of thing. Ephesus wants Caesar to still think they think he's awesome. So all over the Roman Empire, these people built cities just to honor Caesar, like Caesarea, Philippi, literally a, a city built for Caesar by Philip, right? Like it is, it, these guys built churches and temples and columns and honor. Essentially, Caesar keep giving us the government benefit and we'll keep giving you your portion, and we're going to all get rich over on the back of the lower class. This was a brilliant business plan if you were in the upper class, because nothing was lining his pockets like Ephesus. So they built these temples to honor Domitian. Uh, Next slide. So, So he demanded the people call him Lord and God. As a matter of fact, historians have found letters between him and his wife. He made his wife call him my Lord and my God. What a winner. Hey, (laughs) The, the temple's architecture was built to show Domitian's lordship. What he did is he had all these other gods and he built a ceiling over the top of them supported by columns that on top of that ceiling, he put a 28 foot high statue of himself. And he said, see, not only am I the king of kings, I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the God of gods, and if I wasn't the God of all gods, those gods would have stopped me. Now, of course, most people bought this, except for Jewish people who just thought they were statues, right? But but if you could picture this, ne- ne- next slide. So so the from lander by sea, he was the beast who came by land or by sea. Here's the reason: Domitian's temple dominated the skyline. It was fifty foot high with the 28-foot high statue on top of that. Now, for us today, that's sort of like, that's a middling sort of thing. But in that day, with that architecture, with that technology, 50-foot high with a 28-foot statue over the top of it with an extended fist of that, that was like a marvel. That was unbelievable. So if you're coming by boat in the Mediterranean Sea, if you're coming by land from China, this thing is the first thing you would have seen. Next slide. Now, Domitian has a problem. Domitian had a son die at 10 years old. Now, this sort of hurt his God claims, right? Think think about it. If you're God, you can't save your son. What kind of God are you? If you're a God that can't save his son from illness, you mustn't be God. So Domitian has to get in front of this. So he creates a narrative. Here's what he says. I've spoken to the gods of the sky, and the gods of the sky needed my son, who if Domitian, think about it, if Domitian is God, his son would be the Son of God, that that the gods of the sky needed my son's help in the heavens holding the seven stars in place. In, In those days, they believed that there were seven main stars that were the forces behind everything on earth continuing to, to, to move Now, here's the question. How do you get word from Spain to India that your son has died? But that doesn't mean you're not God. It means you're participating with the gods to allow your son to be sitting on top of the world, headed, holding the seven stars in place. So if you wanted to do that, you would print it on money. All Roman announcements was on the money. Why? Because there was no newspapers, no printing press. Town criers are highly unreliable. There's no social media. There's no news. And so in those days, if you lived in rural communities, outside the capital city, you had to wrestle with is what we're hearing, you would hear stuff like wars and rumors of wars and things like this. And you had to wonder, is this real news or is this fake news? Now, because we're so technologically advanced today, we don't have to deal with that at all. But back then, you had to wonder, is this real news or fake news? And so the Romans said, if it comes on money, it's real. So if you got a new coin, and you hadn't seen it before, your job was to call your whole community together. So if you lived in Gundawindi, right, and a new coin shows up, your job was to get all of Gundawindi together. Say, hey, I've got a message. So Domitian gets out in front of this, and he says, hey, my son is sitting on top of the world, holding the seven stars in place. Let me show you the coin. Showing this next slide. This is oh, there it is. This is the Domitian coin on the on the left. There you you have a uh, I don't know half Native American looking picture of um, Domitian there, and then and then on the right you you have his son. That's his that's the tail side of the coin. And if you start at about ten o'clock or eleven o'clock and go that way, it says Domitian, God our Savior. And so what you have is you have the son of God sitting on top of the world, holding the seven stars in place. Remember that. That will be important in a second. Next slide. So the goddess of the region was a goddess named Artemis. In Ephesus, there was 14 different temples to different gods, but the main one was Artemis. She's also known as Kibla or Diana. There was 127 marble pillars going around the circumference of the temple. The temple functioned as the bank. The temple of Artemis controlled who got financing and who didn't. Can you imagine having that much power? That whether you got money or not was tied directly to whether you did the rituals that Artemis demanded. If you have that kind of power, you could demand people do anything to get financing we talked about this, I think, Sunday morning. I'll show you. This is, uh, my friend, my friend Slater, who does nothing but make my life better. He found a better picture of Artemis than I showed. That's, that's, there you, there's Artemis there. Is it She's something? Hey. She was the guy, as you could see, because it's a better resolution picture. Um, her underside there is filled with small animals. She was the goddess of the protection of small animals. She was also, I don't want to be rude, but she's obviously got a lot of nourishment there on her front there, you know. Because even when they're 3,500 years old and made of stone, a 20-breasted woman is frankly awesome. <laughs> so she was the goddess of nourishment, the goddess of the hunt. Some places she was called the goddess of groceries, like that, like that kind of thing. Like it's, it's um, essentially, uh, would you like food? Would you like fertility? And would you like to be saved in childbirth? And would you like your basic needs met? Uh, I'm your answer. Of course, if that's the kind of power you're wielding, what, what could she demand? Anything. Might it be relevant that she was the goddess in charge when Paul said, I do not permit a woman to have authority over me? Maybe that matters. Maybe that's not anti-women. Maybe that's pro the anti-oppression of men by a female goddess because part of what she demanded was outdoor debasement of men and mutilation and in some cases the self-castration to offer your testicles on the altar of Kibala so that she will provide you food. Amazing sort of oppression. You can see why Paul's mission of Christ there went so well. And you show up and say, I have a God that loves you just because. He'll save you just because. He'll provide for you just because. And he'll bless you just because. And you get to keep all your bits intact. That is a compelling message, right? And so they had all this power, big time. And it was debasing to humanity. Uh, Next slide. So she was the goddess of the hunt, food, and child, But they required the slating was great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Just stop for a second, let's think about this. Could you imagine being a lampstand, a representative of Christ in that city? Like, if you think Toowoomba's hard, you don't understand how hard it is for Christians these days. <laughs> what? Like, like, whatever your problem is with Palaszczuk, she's not Artemis. She's not wielding that kind of control and horror. Then there was, this, there was the history of Artemis. Because all the gods have a history. You got to wonder where they came from, right? Here's the history of Artemis. Next slide. So Artemis was known as the lady of Ephesus. Here was what they said, that she was born by descending from heaven. And when she descended from heaven, she landed on the tree of life. And so what they did is they built her temple on the site of the landing on the tree of life. And they called her temple paradise. Here's the problem. For who? Who is her rule producing paradise for? Only the top class. Everybody in the underclass is showing up debasing themselves just to get her to give them food. And man, the debasement is worse than you can imagine. There was horrible things going on underneath the temple to Artemis. There was the legal, systemic, Um, government-sanctioned raping of lower-class children by upper-class adults in the name of dual-souling in order to be like Caesar. Like, it was horrible. I'm going to show you a picture. And if you know what this is, please don't shout it out because this is an internal sort of exercise. I want to show you a picture that I want you just to look at for 10 seconds and think, what is that? I'll tell you where it is it is a marble slab on the, on, the, on the sidewalk or on the floor just outside the back door underneath the temple to Artemis. So this was a slab at the entranceway to the back entrance of the temple of Artemis. And there's all kinds of things going on here, but there's two main things. I want you to just look at that and think, I wonder what that is. Y- you see two obvious things there, don't you? You see a foot. A, a, quite a small foot actually and then you see a hole up at the top you know what that was if you've ever been to dream world or movie world or disney world and you're on getting get on a big roller coaster normally in the line there's a character or some kind of height thing right like in, at disney it's mickey mouse saying you got to be this tall to ride this ride that's what that is In order to participate in the government-sanctioned sexual assault of lower-class people, you had to meet two requirements. One, your foot had to be bigger than that foot. And two, you had to have a coin to put in that hole. In other words, if you were old enough and you could afford it, you could play here. Again, whatever you think is government oppression, it is paling in comparison to that. That is shocking debasement and oppression at a level unseen to mankind. This is just unbelievable. Are, is sexual assault and sex trafficking of children happening today? Yes, it is. Horribly, but it's illegal. And if you get caught, you will go to jail. This was out in public for everybody to see. This was Ephesus. Now, That is my best effort explaining the history of Ephesus, the big story. Now let's look at the small story. Let's look at Jesus' letter to the Ephesians and ask, hmm, I wonder if this helps us. Next slide. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. (laughs) That is an in-your-face confrontation. It's like, no, 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 no. Domitian says his son's the son of God holding things in place. What a load of baloney. I'm the one holding the seven. This is not something to just read over. The, the Ephesian Christians would have been like, yeah, get you some of that. He holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, a reference to the seven churches. In other words, I'm not a God that sits above the broken story. I'm walking amongst the broken story to, to make a better narrative out of it. I know your deeds, your hard work. Here comes the commendations, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. In other words, even if it meant you went broke, you're not going to participate in the sexual assault and debasement of the Artemis cult. Good job. Like, seriously, you got to draw the line somewhere. And, and, and the intentional and systemic sexual assault of minors who are just simply lower class people than you, that is not okay. And I come in that, f- like, hey, good job, good job. Keep going. Sorry. Next slide. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. I'll explain that in a second. You have per- you persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. Like you, you think, man, these guys are doing pretty good here. Right? But then Jesus is like, come on, man, we got to get this one thing right. There's something missing here. Watch what he says. This one thing against you. You've forsaken the love of that you had at first consider how far you've fallen let's stop for a second and think about that can you imagine living in ephesus with all that going on it would be very easy in trying to stand up against wickedness that you would get a bit cynical and loot and get a bit hard and lose your ability to love people that's what happened in this story Jesus is like, hey, hard work, perseverance, standing up. Yes, but I have this against you. You have forgot the main command of Christ, which is they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And this is my command I leave you, to love each other and to love God. And then he says it again. Actually, if you love God and love people, that's the way. But if you can't love God, just love people. God can handle it. Like it's that. It's this new command I give to you. Love each other. Do not be people consumed with, with being right about one verse. Be people consumed with fulfilling scripture by doing unto others as you do. He's, essentially, Jesus is fitting his modus operandi. Hey, I commend you for this, but all of this without love. It's like you're a clanging cymbal. There's something wrong going on here. Next, next slide. To the one who's victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the, look, notice this, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, wait a minute, you, you mean Artemis didn't actually land on the tree of life and her temple isn't paradise? This is like, like, again, just look at the fruit of it. Paradise? In what, on what planet is that paradise for anybody other than the first class people? It's utter debasement for everybody else just to get their basic needs met. This is not just something to read over. This is, this is Jesus going, they're feeding you a bunch of lies and I'm telling you, there's a better way to do this. Now, the big story, the small story. Now let's spend the rest of the time examining what's happening in us right now and how should we respond? And I'm begging you, so critical. Please, if you've tuned out, tune back in. And please respond to what Jesus is saying here. Next slide. This is a massive confrontation to the claim of Caesar. Jesus is saying Domitian's not the center of the universe. He walks amongst the lampstands, not sitting up above the story, but actually in the story. And here's how he commends them. He knows what they're they're doing. Next slide. So he commends them for hard work. Where's the church going from here? Well, first, it's going into a season of hard work and it should. Two years of lockdowns and, 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 and unpredictable scheduling, and the temptation is going to be to engage back together with a soft entry. That is not the way. The way is to bend our life to the yes response and to engagement and to get after it. We have a once-in-a-hundred-year opportunity at the end of pandemics where people come back to be grounded in spirituality. And this is our moment. This is our time. And it is not time to sit back and be soft about our re-entry, but rather to put the throttle on the ground. He said it to Ephesus. I'm saying it to here because I believe it's a word from the Lord. And that is this. It is time for us to get after it again. To posture our heart toward the infinite possibilities that God has for us. The second thing he commends is perseverance. Can, can you imagine the constant pressure every day to participate in the Artemis cult or the imperial cult? It would have been horrible. And they really, you couldn't really speak out about it. You'd die. And so their perseverance was, if it cost us monetarily, I will not participate in that. Yeah. Like it was a real sort of... um. Um and 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 again this wasn't preference this was systemic legal sexual assault of underclassed children that should be stood against it was you know the, the you know the stuff i've heard people say about oh the government's oppressing us they're asking us to put a thin piece of cloth on our face what like what your people say i'd die for jesus you would you won't even put a mask on die for jesus you're not even thinking about the most vulnerable amongst us are we kidding ourselves so it's hard work it was perseverance. Next slide. He commends them for their to- no toleration of wickedness. Now I want to be clear about this cuz words don't matter how we picture words working matters. And some people might some people might see the word wickedness and just interpret that as anything I don't like. No. The wickedness was the debasement, the self-mutilation, the outdoor sexual immorality festivals, and the systemic oppression and assault of underage, underclassed people underneath the temple. They said, we're not having any of that. Jesus says, good on you. Hard work, perseverance, no toleration of wickedness. Next one. He says, "I, I, I honor the fact that you upheld true apostleship. See, there was an argument in the first century in Ephesus about Jesus. I know shock, right? And here's the thing. There was a group of people, and I want to be fair to them, they were trying to honor Jesus. They weren't trying to debase Jesus. But what they said was, was Jesus was so awesome, he couldn't have possibly been a man. He had to be like a 33-year spiritual apparition, and you just thought he was a man, and then of course the disciples were like, yeah, but we saw him eat fish and it didn't just fall through. And like, it, was like a, it was like a whole thing. And here's why that matters. That matters because if Jesus is only thought of as God and not thought of as a man, it's much harder, it's much harder to apply the way he taught us to live. Like if I said, come on now, Jesus, hey, look, Jesus taught us to treat our enemies differently than that. He taught us to be soft and not, not revengeful. He, hey, come on. Hey, Jesus taught us to, to, in, to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. And then you could go, yeah, but that was easy for him. He was like, God, but yeah, okay, but he was also fully man. And so Jesus affirms them to stand up for saying, no, 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 he's not just God. He was also fully man who was teaching people how to live here, not... To- not just how to go somewhere else, right? Like Jesus' message was never go to heaven when you die. Here's a magic prayer you could pray so one day you can go somewhere else. Jesus' message was have heaven so established in you right now that when you do go to heaven, you don't get whiplash. It was a way of living here now, today. The fifth thing he he affirms in them is they endured hardship without growing weary, another way of saying perseverance. But he has this one thing against them. And this is where I want to park for the next 12 minutes and urge us to respond. Next slide. They forsook their commitment to love. See, what happened in this story is their biggest strength, orthodoxy, upholding true apostleship, calling out wickedness where they saw it. What was their biggest strength became their biggest weakness. In calling out wickedness, they forgot the difference between calling out ideas and calling out people. It's one thing to say an idea is wicked. It's another thing to say you are equivalent to that idea and you are. That's just two different things, right? They, they in all of their orthodoxy, they had lost their commitment to be people of love. In other words, they became a church of loveless orthodoxy essentially this. Please hear me. If you would rather be known for your distinctive doctrines instead of your extravagant love, you have missed the entire point. Where's the church going? There's going to be a massive move away from a focus entirely on orthodoxy and a move to orthopraxy or right practice, loving practice, We need to lose our love affair with our 24 beliefs and our bullet points on our pamphlets and gain a love affair for our brothers and sisters in our community. We need to lose our love affair with our preferences and gain a love affair for for our community. We need to lose our love affair to freedom for freedom's sake and gain a love affair for protecting the most vulnerable. We need to lose our love affair. The church of Jesus Christ cannot afford another season where we love our doctrines more than the people. It's Jesus' word to the church at Ephesus. I think it really applies to us. Has the church in Australia loved its doctrines more than the people? Have you seen anything, like, I don't know, recently where in the name of Jesus and a doctrine or a verse... There was a violation of love for an entire group of people. Mm -hmm. How far have we fallen? When we love our beliefs more than the person. Jesus is saying, if you can find a way to hold on to truth, but express it in a way that always honors love. Boy, let's say it this way. Next slide. Anyone who claims to be, this is from 1 John chapter 2, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Oh, by the way, even if their beliefs are correct, (laughs) anyone who claims to be in the light, but if you look at their life, they hate their brothers and sisters, they're in darkness. And anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, even if they haven't worked out all their doctrines yet. (laughs) And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. In other words, to John and Jesus, the key to not making you stumble is not getting all your doctrines correct. As a matter of fact, getting stuck in doctrinal statements can oftentimes stunt our growth in terms of development because we can't go past that. Actually, John says, if you love people, you're in the light and you're allowed the flexibility of developing your beliefs. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Can we proclaim the truth while protecting love at all costs? That's the question that Jesus wants us to answer. What we also learn in this passage is that sacred objects never deliver. Anything outside of us that promises to deliver a freedom from lack of wholeness, that's a lie. Jesus is not that which takes our lack away. Jesus is that which engages our lack with us and removes the sting of it because we're not in it alone. What we find is that even good things, if they're outside of us, if we're not enough without them, we'll never be enough with them. Artemis didn't deliver, stars don't deliver, Domitian doesn't deliver, financial freedom doesn't deliver. A, a true tree of life is found in the center of Christ in his lampstand. What's Christ's lampstand? Us. A, pe- a Jesus people for the sake of our world. In this specific case, Toowoomba, Australia, whatever mission. Like, like, like the, tr- the true tree of life and the true paradise of God is found in a Christ- group of people a body of christ who are prioritizing love over whatever they think their beliefs matter it's a group of people who prioritize people more than the rules they can find it's that it's it's people intentionally living with a hey god loves people more than the rules why because the jesus that the god that jesus revealed fully and finally always loved people more than the rules and was concerned about fulfilling scripture instead of being right about the one verse he was presented Stone the adulterer. No, what? What year is it? I love people more than the rule. We're going to fulfill scripture instead of, I'm going to, I love that person more than that doctrine. That was like Jesus 101. Next slide. Have we lost our passion for being loving at the altar of belief and especially preference? Most of the things we think are core doctrines are really just our preference. There are some core doctrines, but mostly not what we're talking about. It's just like, prefer it. And there's a big temptation to call our preference God. If you've ever tried to lead worship, you've experienced this. You're like pouring your heart out, man, right? This guy tonight does a great job. And some of you were really, really engaged, but I'm sure he'd be looking out and going, my goodness, right? So you're thinking, man, what am I doing, right? And then you get off. And then, and anybody's ever led worship ever has had somebody at some point come up to them and go, oh, I'm sure you're a good person, but God wasn't in that song today. God wasn't in the song. Just say what you mean. I don't like the song. That's okay. You have to like what we like. But if I don't like it, God must not like it. What are we talking about? Then God just becomes a giant projection of a big version of us. No, 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 no. Like, have we lost our passion for being loving at the altar of belief? In other words, are we more in love with our doctrine than we are with the person? Oof. Jesus called us to love our neighbor as ourself. Have we rationalized that away over what we perceive as orthodoxy? Where have we rationalized being unloving because it violates some verse we found? Jesus is like, what are you doing? Just look at how I lived. I wanted to fulfill scripture, not be right about it. You don't want to get the Bible right and Jesus wrong. That'd be terrible. Next slide. Have we put our faith in anything external? And if we have, is it ever truly delivered? Jesus' message to the church at Ephesus was that we should discuss doctrine, but defend love with everything we have. Ironically, the guy that wrote Revelation also wrote a gospel. And in his gospel, he reports that Jesus says that they'll all know you're my disciple by your love. And that guy also wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, where he seems to keep bringing it back to that. Watch what he says. Next slide. Dear friends, this is 1st John 3. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Why? Because we keep his commands. Hang on a second. A couple things. Words don't matter. How we picture words working matters. When I say, keep the command, most people in the Western world picture, obey the command. But hang on, he spent a whole chapter before that going, no one obeys the commands, and anyone that says they obey all the commands, they're a liar, and the truth isn't in them. But then he switches the word, and he says, keep. If you go look that word up, keep, just go to biblehub.org, look at the Greek. The word is not obey, it's Keep. If you look up the root word, it's a guard. It's actually even deeper than that. It's an ancient Greek word for a castle keep. A castle keep was the most fortified place of protection for the vulnerable in a time of attack. We still use it that way today. In soccer, you have a goalkeeper, in ice hockey, you have a keeper. If you have a small child and there was an emergency and you said, Shane, there's an emergency, please keep her for a second. That doesn't mean obey the baby. (laughs) That means protect the baby, guard the baby. So let's read it that way. We have confidence for God and receive him anything we ask because we protect, guard. We protect his command and do what pleases him. Now let's be specific. What's the command? And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and to love one another. What is Christianity? It's seeing the world as Jesus, all the world, seeing God, oh, Jesus, saw oh God, and applying scripture, how Jesus applied scripture. And what was Jesus' command? Believe in me and love each other. So, Shane, where do you draw the line, man? Where do you draw the line? There's got to be a line somewhere. Yes, there is. Believe in Jesus and love each other. The end. Believe in Jesus and love each other. That's the line. But Shane, shouldn't we discuss all these things? Yes. I spent half a day today discussing stuff. And they're important discussions to have. And they're helpful. But if those discussions aren't shame-free discussions where we can discuss it without fear of shaming one another, hang on, we don't draw the line on tangential doctrinal discussions. We draw the line on believing in Jesus and love one another. Where does New Hope draw the line? It's got to be a line. Yes, there is a line at New Hope. Believe in Jesus Christ and love each other. But what about this? Oh, we can discuss that in a loving way. But where we actually draw the line, where we actually protect and draw the line and keep is believe in Jesus and love one another. But Shane, there's this thing. I know. Believe in Jesus. Love one another. The end. Watch what John says. Next slide. The one who keeps, same word by the way, God's commands, lives in him. What was God's command? Believe in Jesus. <laughs> love one another. And and notice how he sets us free. It's not like you are perfect about it. It's just you wake up intentionally protecting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 oh, guarding. Like We're not going to be distracted by foolish controversies or quarrels about the law. We're going to draw the line on believe in Jesus and love one another. And he and them, and this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. One last question I want us to wrestle with. Next slide. Is there any person that I need to rebuild the loving connection with despite a difference of opinion? Is there anyone in my heart I've canceled? Not because of belief in Jesus or love for one another, but because they disagree with me about this or that or this, or they wouldn't watch the YouTube clip that I sent them or they didn't respond to this. Wait, wait, no, believe in Jesus. Is there any place, if the world sees us in conversation, may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified instead of us needing to be right about everything. What's Jesus's word for us? And I'm telling you, I'm begging you, please respond to this. A church that loves its doctrines more than the people is already been left behind. I could make a case that they're already 2,000 years behind. But if we don't get on this way very quickly, I think the Spirit of God is done with our love affair, with petty doctrines, at the expense of love for people. And we had better get on board. For the sake of the name of Jesus in our world, may we be people who believe in Jesus and love and protect that. So, my brothers and sisters, Where have we come this week? Well, we've come this week to a message that says we should bend our heart toward the yes response, not the no response, to engagement instead of disengagement, to saying yes to the infinite possibilities. We've come this week to understand that Christianity is not being an expert in climate, it's not being an expert in medicine, it's not being an expert in politics, and it's not being an expert in theology. Being a Christian is about seeing the world how Jesus saw the world, seeing God how Jesus saw God, applying Scripture, how Jesus applied Scripture, waking up every day, saying yes to the possibilities to make somebody else's life better by saying yes to the gift of God's breath today. And every second we spend on foolish controversies or quarrels about the law, we are not hallowing the name. We are profaning it, treating it as if it's common, that there are two ways to build our life on the back of a warhorse or the back of a donkey. We do not want to say in the name of Jesus, but our life looks like Pilate. And may we, my brothers and sisters, approach the scriptures in a much more compelling way, uh, searching all three dimensions of truth and approaching it Christ-centered, genre-specific, non-static, Incarnational and pilgrimage, and may we discuss doctrine but hold the line at belief in Jesus and love. May we never have a love affair with doctrine that violates our love for people because if Jesus didn't teach us anything, it's that God loves people more than the rules. And may we be people who fulfill scripture instead of simply being right about it. I hope Jesus got bigger for you this week. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central. and has got bigger, not smaller. Until I see you next year, grace and peace, everybody.